Kylie, welcome to the show. Uh, in preparing for this podcast, I did a lot of research, and it, I've um, what I found out is that we work together. Can you confirm that? Is that is that accurate? Last I checked, we work together, Brandon, but it's not 4.30 Pacific uh, Pacific Daylight Time yet, so I can't be certain. That's true. (laughs) Who knows? Who knows? Well, listen, I wanted to uh, bring you on the show because I thought we would, you know, get into some of the stuff we do at DXC and how we help out with uh, app modernization and digital transformation and all that. But before we get into all that, I want to hear about how you became an event ambassador for the America's Cup. So a couple questions. For those that maybe don't know, what is the America's Cup? Second question, what does the event ambassador do? Okay. Well, the America's Cup is a a huge worldwide sailing event, and um, it was hosted and visible from land for the first time in its uh, 100-year or so history, from a pier in San Francisco back in 2013. And because I was living in San Francisco and it was a really cool world-class sailing event, I I dragged my family into it. I said, okay, guys, we have to volunteer for the America's Cup. So I signed us up not knowing how involved it would be to get a background check and, and all that stuff. Um, but after several months of training and some fingerprinting, <laughs> uh, I became an event ambassador and I had kind of a cool role. I got to check the wait time for the food lines. So there was a food truck court and I got to wander around in my cool Puma gear and um, count people in line and sample stuff to make sure the quality was good and fill out my little checklist. And then when I was done with my lunchtime shift, I could just go watch the sailing. Okay. So that's funny. I thought when you said training, I thought like, oh, wow, we actually have to like pack sails or like have to learn how stuff. So so it sounds like training was learning how to uh, just like run a stopwatch and like, you know, be in the right place, right time. It doesn't sound as glamorous as maybe I was thinking it was going to be. No, it was not. It was more about learning where all the restrooms were because that's the most commonly asked question. Where's the bathroom? <laughs> that's always <laughs> always good to know. Now, I'm trying to think back because I'm not – I can't tell you I'm like a, truly a huge fan of the America's Cup and I guess I've kind of lost touch. But was this the year that uh, Oracle had like a big boat? Like they had – like Larry Ellison was sponsoring a big team and and yes. they were uh, – and, and this was – was this the – is it the catamaran era or is this, I don't even know. So this was like, wasn't there some controversy? Like there were some arguments about like they didn't, shouldn't use catamarans or they should, or like the U S was trying to make it in their favor. Like, I don't know. Is this right? Is it ringing in a bell? It is. It is correct. Brandon, they, uh, there was a lot of talk about how it was all about the technology. I think of the 66 foot catamaran because it goes up on a hydrofoil and, you know, it wasn't like the stars and stripes, vintage, beautiful wooden yacht, right? It's this metal and all this high tech and the titanium and, you know, the guys are in helmets and gear, you know, because it's dangerous. In fact, during, during one of the trial runs, uh, actually, one of the sailors was lost. Uh, the ship capsized, and he got tangled under under the water in the bay. And you know, the San Francisco Bay is kind of a dangerous place. It's cold, and there's a lot of currents, and there's a lot of container ships coming and going. And so, uh, yeah, that's the kind of controversial 2013 America's Cup. It was America's Cup 34. All right, I don't even remember. Did we win or did we lose? We being America, did we retain it or did we lose? 
Uh, we retained it. Team Oracle beat the New Zealand. Boat. Okay, good. And then I don't even know what's going on now. Is this still? Are we still winning? Or like who? Who? Do you, are you I don't even know. following it? No, I was a total fair weather, fr- you know, fan. I didn't know anything about sailing. I just thought it would be cool to volunteer for this thing down on the pier in San Francisco. No, so. sounds like fantastic. I don't know. Sailing seems so hard. Now I haven't. I haven't been to San Francisco that much, but I've taken the boat ride to uh, Alcatraz, which is a fantastic mm-hmm. tour. Highly recommend it. Night tour at Alcatraz, I thought was super fun. But uh, yeah, I did I, I did think like when they talked about swimming and like in the, I was like, I don't know. It looked very dangerous. I, I would I would never, if I had to swim across from Alcatraz, I was pretty convinced I would die. So uh, I would think uh, racing boats in the San Francisco Bay be very, very difficult. Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, you know, we can't talk all the time about sailing. So I always like to start with, um, you're doing a bunch of interesting things here at DC, but let's maybe go back in time a little bit. Like, how did you find your way into tech? What was kind of your entryway? What's the first programming language that you got familiar with? Um, Well, I actually learned how to program in basic in Algebra 2 class uh, when I was a junior in high school. So long time ago, it was a little Radio Shack Tandy computer that the math teacher bought and brought into the class. And he said, there's this thing called computer programming, and I want to teach you what it is. Mm-hmm. So this so, was uh, all the way back to like, you know. Uh, 1979. You, I was going to say, but uh, it's like line number 10, right? You know, you put in 10, and then you put in like print, and then you could do like go to 20, right? I mean, this is this is like the Absolutely. dawn of uh I don't know, I guess maybe the dawn of consumer programming computers. So, all right. So what was, what yes. was it fun or was it just, I mean, at that point, was it just, I mean, talk about new. I mean, that's probably about as new to a high school class as it could get. Was it, was it like immediately intriguing to you or was it just kind of like, huh, this is unusual? It was the second. It was, huh, this is unusual, you know, and then I didn't think much about it until college. All right. And then in college you have this, what I think is like a, a very unusual uh, pairing of, uh, I guess we'll call it interest. Looks like you you were an English major, right? It wouldn't itself great. Of course, we all need to know how to write. But then you somehow bridged that to be a Unix administrator. So I don't, I wouldn't say we see a lot of that crossover. So what's the story there? How did that happen? Sure. I'm the original STEAM graduate. You know how they have STEM, uh-huh. science, technology, engineering, and math, and now they've expanded it to be science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. Oh, um, you know, okay. I was a liberal arts major, okay? And I needed a work-study job when I was a sophomore in college, and I went to the bulletin board, which was actually cork and paper. And I read all the job postings, and I saw one for a computer uh, lab attendant or something like that. And one of the prerequisites was you had to be an English major. And I thought, look at this. When does this ever pop up? So I applied for this work-study job, and I was selected to be a computer lab monitor on a research project that was being funded by Bell Laboratories, and it was at Colorado State University, started in 1982, and they were piloting this new system that was word processing terminals. So, you know, they were dumb terminals attached to Unix boxes. We had four Unix boxes that ran like six or eight terminals, I don't remember. And it ran a, a software program called the Writer's Workbench. And it was supposed to automate the correction of grammar and punctuation so that students and professors could focus on more the the reasoning of the paper, the flow of the argument, the style of the paper, et cetera, because everyone had to take beginning composition, you know, to graduate from Colorado State back then. So every freshman had to run through this class and they got this, two of my professors got this research grant and uh, we had a computer lab and there I was 
wow, one of so several you, I mean, English majors. I was going to say, mm-hmm. this is like Grammarly now or like all, I don't know, Microsoft Word, uh, it's Spell Microsoft, Check. It's, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it, the, the Bell Labs guys sold it to Microsoft. So uh, the squiggly line, uh-huh. that was my project back in 1982. Wow. I was going to say, was this like, uh, I'm trying to think back, would that have been like on a green screen or did it actually like have like squiggly lines and stuff like that? Like how did it tell you it was doing something wrong? Well, it was a word processing program, you mm-hmm. know, so it it looked like word, right? And so it would just, I think it underlined the stuff. Okay. Um, it didn't make the suggestions that it makes now. It would just underline a sentence and say it was ungrammatical. And a lot of times the students would fix it or they'd raise their hand and I'd come over and say, how can I help you? And they'd say, oh, we don't know what, I don't know what to do with this. And I'd say, okay, there's a dangling participle or you need a comma oh, or okay. um, try a semicolon, you know? <laughs> so I had to be kind of an English subject matter expert. And then I also had to be able to reboot the machines and, you know, and do the backup every Friday afternoon, you know, put the backup tapes in. I had to learn a little bit of C programming just mm-hmm. to do some really basic stuff. Um, but kind of one of our biggest things that we did, Brandon, very important, we had a, you know, kind of a stable of dot matrix printers and all the papers were printed out. So it was really loud and dot matrixy. And then all of the monitors, we had to detractor the paper. So we had to pull the little, yep. you know, yeah, the holes perforated sides. Yes. So, so one of my guys decided that there was this like mythical being called the dread detractor. And, you know, we all had to detractor these papers. So we were like, you know, acolytes of the dread detractor. Oh, I like it. I like it. Well, that's, that's funny. You, so you were basically the, the AI, you were the, I was gonna say you weren't artificially intelligent. You were just the human being. And so instead of, uh, you know, getting a suggestion like you do now and you're typing an email, they're like, they give you the phrases. That's, it's funny. That's interesting. You just come over and you just tell someone, well, just write this, do this. That's, uh, that's interesting. So do you remember what was the Unix? Do you remember like what Unix operating system was it at the time? Was it like, I don't even know what it would be. I guess Bell Labs, Unix or something like that? Yeah, I think it was some kind of proprietary flavor that they had. Um, all I know is that my logon was E space Kylie, you know, <laughs> so, Kylie. To, nice. to open to open the shell or the editor or whatever it was, <laughs> E Kylie. So then we all just called each other that, E Mark, E Kylie, yes. you know, E Donovan, the whatever. Dawn so that was of- our thing. I was gonna say the dawn of usernames, right? You're just like you're yes. gonna, you're gonna be carried. This is going to be uh, my son, much you know, is nine years old. So, given uh, all the recent events, I had to make him a, a G. I finally just was like, oh, I'm making you a Gmail account. Where so I, I brought him over. I'm like, all right, what do you want your username to be? And so I told him, I was like, you need to think about this. It's gonna be with you for a long time. I don't think he really even take it seriously, but I was like, trust me, you're gonna remember this one day. If you don't like it, you're gonna be angry. So, so pick your uh, your usernames wisely, is is what I as I told him. Um, all right, so you, you're doing this job for a while, and then you're I guess you're off to graduate. So at this point, were you then suddenly did you kind of think like, hey, I want to get into computers and computing and take my English major and apply it there? Like, what was your first job in tech, and like kind of what drew you to tech after you know graduating from school? Sure. Um, yeah, well, so, you know, I graduated with my English degree and everybody's like, well, what are you going to do with that? You know, <laughs> so I was a touch typist. So I got a job at a temporary agency and I was like clerical support for a mortgage company. 
But what was interesting about that is that it was the kind of the advent of the PC in the workplace. So they had these, the mortgage company had these personal computers and they had these two programs, WordPerfect and Lotus123. And all the folks in the office had to start using this weird device, this personal computer. And now everything they did either had to be in WordPerfect or Lotus123. So they were like, oh, wait. You said something about computers. Give it to Kylie because she knows computers. So I and also at this time, um, Brandon, anything like IT, whether you call it management information systems or data processing, it was all considered operations. Right. So Mm -hmm. it was just an operations job. So, you know, I answered telephones, I processed loan applications and I backed up computers and I taught people how to use them. And I installed upgrades of WordPerfect and Lotus one, two, three. And I just kind of became like a system administrator, the user trainer, the help desk, all of it. So yeah, that's cool. That's funny. It's interesting how your basic your college experience like leads you right, you know, from I guess processing text in Unix to to WordPerfect, which was I don't know. I I think generally I don't consider like the dawn of word processing, or I guess what popularized uh, word processing, at least in my world, was uh, WordPerfect. And I still think uh, I'm sure you're going to remember it. Uh, WordPerfect, the the best feature of WordPerfect, reveal codes. I was, I just like that was the greatest thing of all time. You could just reveal codes and be see like all the weird things you've done and then you could just delete it. To this day, Absolutely. I often think to myself, you know, and everyone has had this experience with any of the Microsoft Office things. Like something weird just happens. Like you just like you type something and it bolds or it won't unbold or like you know there's something inside this thing that you can't delete. And I always think to myself, you know, if this was word perfect, we could just do reveal codes and we could delete it forever. But no. It's never, uh, it's never going to happen. I guess we have to, I have to get over the fact that reveal codes is, it's not coming back no matter how much I want it. That's right. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, so was it a fun job? Did you enjoy it or was, did you, is this sort of like kind of what got you interested in technology or was it just like, Hey, I'm here, I'm just going to keep doing it. Like, what was your feeling at that time? It, it was fun. I enjoyed the the loan processing bit as well. And I learned how to process like FHA loans and VA loans. And, you know, a couple of years into that, I thought to myself, I could, I could, I could get a loan. I could buy a house. I could get a loan and buy a house. And you know, that had just never occurred to me, Brandon. So, so, uh, I, you know, I bought my first house when I was like 26 years old and I thought, I'm going to live here for 30 years. I'm going to pay off my mortgage. I'm never going to leave. And they're going to carry me out in a pine box. Wow. Now that, that didn't wow. happen. That's, <laughs> I was going to say, now that is that, now that is a plan. That is, that's funny. That is probably a good, uh, a good way to learn about loans is just to process them all day. And then it probably does dawn on you. You're like, well, if these people can get loans. I could get a loan. I bet you that would probably be a common uh, revelation to anyone that did that all day long. Especially if you're like a kid, a recent college graduate, and you're going out with your friends a lot and your bar bills are pretty hefty. And literally, Brandon, I thought if I didn't go out for four consecutive weekends, I'd have enough for an FHA down payment for a house. I don't know if that's good or bad. That, that, and, and such, and I was going to, I was about to say, in the housing crisis was born right there, right at that moment. That, uh, no, that's great. Well, that, no, that's- no, no. That was, that was, when loans were much more heavily regulated. So that's true. This is before, before it got crazy, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So you, you do this, you're getting into tech and then, you know, we're going to flash forward here because you know, one of the jobs I wanted to, that you have that I really want to hear about because I've been to San Francisco a bunch was 
Somehow you became, I'm going to try to read this whole thing here, the Deputy Chief Information Officer at the San Francisco Municipal Transfer, Transportation Agency. So first thing, this is going to be great for everyone. Maybe you can finally explain the public transportation system in San Francisco because I'm, I'm always confused. Like I'm always on the wrong thing or calling the thing that I'm on the wrong the wrong one. So is this would is this what people call the Muni or is this a different thing? Like which, which this, part of it is? Yeah, Muni is one of the agencies that the Municipal Transportation Agency governs. So it's the Municipal Railway, the Department of Parking and Traffic, and the Taxi Commission. And at least that's the the those were the three agencies when I was there. I don't know if the city has changed at all because it's been you know it's been about ten years, Brandon. Um, but that was what the municipal transportation agency was made up of. So for getting around purposes, yes, it was Muni. Okay. But now what is that different than BART or is that the same thing? Oh, we're sworn enemies, Brandon. Okay. That's the part I did. I, did. I felt like there was some bad blood between the oh, two. Totally so so like, blood. what is like, I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> like this is like a rivalry. I don't even know like who to cheer for. Like what, what, what is the, the, I guess, what is the difference between the two? And like, why is there animosity? Like which side okay. should I be on? Okay. So the municipal railway has been in San Francisco since like 1918 or some, it goes way, way, way back. Um, you know, like, the Chicago transit or the transit in New York city it goes way back to kind of those early days. And of course, BART was a, was a great idea in the seventies and essentially BART was to bring the suburban commuter into San Francisco and Muni was designed to move San Franciscans around San Francisco. So, um, BART is heavy rail, Muni is light rail, BART is, I mean, all transit is heavily subsidized. But, you know, your ride on BART back in the day was like $25 and people would pay like four, you know, so very heavily sub subsidized. And they always got more money out of the regional funding from the federal government. So that's kind of why we were sworn enemies. Oh, okay. um, Competing you for know, money, got it. Yeah. Muni puts 1,100 vehicles on the road every day to move 700,000 people through 49 square miles. And, you know, BART just brings people in from like Pleasanton. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Good. I didn't know there was such a rivalry because this this shows you uh, it's like being a, a bad sports fan or not knowing a sports. Like I'll just be in San Francisco and I'll just like refer to everything as like, oh, I think I'm taking the Bart, and people will be like, no, that's not where you're on. Or, or yeah. I'm on the. I just I just never know. I'm like, it's a yeah. station. Yeah. It has a train. I don't know. Can we just have one name? But no. Now I understand. There's heavy competition. There's a lot of money at stake. So all right, I'll I'll, I'll right. try to take uh, pay closer attention next time. So and this sounds Brandon, the, the giveaway mm. used to be carpet. If okay. there was carpet on the floor of the vehicle, you were on Bart. Oh, if there was okay. you know junky linoleum with um, like gum and sunflower seed shells ground into it, you were on Muni. Okay. But that's not the case anymore. Now everything has carpet. No, I think I think everything has linoleum now. <laughs> Okay. Well, that's probably, that probably makes sense. It probably makes yeah. sense. Especially, especially now that, you know, we need masks and all that kind of stuff. You yes. want that easy to clean surface. Yes. Everything must be wiped down. So, okay. So how did this, I mean, it sounds like an awesome job. How did you get, how do you get a job to become the chief deputy chief information officer at the uh, transportation agency? Like what happened? Okay. 
So I was in financial services for like the first 10 years of my career. And then I made the switch. I, I applied for a job at the city and county of San Francisco, the controller's office. Um, you know, they do all the, the budgeting and finance for the different city departments. And so I applied to be a land administrator there. They were um, decommissioning their Wang VS. They were upgrading from Banyan Vines to a Novell network. And I was a Novell administrator uh, in one of my financial services roles. So I applied for a job at the city and I had to take a test. It's all merit-based. So I had to take a test similar to my Novell certification test. And then I had to do a, an interview with like four or five panelists. So I passed the test and then four months later, Brandon, they called me and said, hey, you were the highest, you scored highest on the test. Come in and Come in an interview. Wait, wait, wait. And I was what like, was the what, test? Was like, was like the test like you? about Novell? Like, like what was like yeah. what were the questions? Yeah, uh, you know, it, it, like Novell commands. Like, how do you trace a route? Wow. Um, okay. You know, how do you how do you structure groups? You know, um, so it was it was like a Novell certification test. Okay. So you come um, in, you take the test, you meet with four take people. The test. Four months go by. Uh, Four months go by and I figure, I wonder why I never heard back on that. And they call me and they said, hey, we just wanted to let you know. Congratulations. You scored highest on the test. And I'm like, who are you? Why are you calling me? <laughs> and they're like, do you want to come in for an interview? And I was like, sure. So I come in for an interview and there's four people and they're, they're asking, they ask a question and then you respond and they don't ask any follow-up questions. Then the next person asks you a question and you respond, no follow-up and so on. It was the strangest interview I'd ever had. It sounds like a so dissertation I, defense or something. Like you're just... Yeah. Like standing there. That's yes. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It was weird. So I was like, this is just the strangest thing. So I went away and I thought that that was a big waste of time. And then like two months later, I get a call. Hey, you Scott, you scored highest on both the written and the verbal. Um, would you like the job? <laughs> really? And I was okay. Yeah. Yeah. And Brandon, it it paid 30% more than my job as a senior land technical support specialist at a major bank. Okay. And I was like, heck yeah, I want the job. Yeah, I'm taking that money. So I went to um, work for the city and county of San Francisco. And I essentially, they had a six month timeline to decommission the Wang VS and upgrade to Novell from Banyan Vines and to upgrade all of their folks to Windows 3.1. So it was the first time that these folks were ever going to see a GUI. You know, they were used to kind of a DOS-based everything or a green screen from the mainframe. And I was going to get them to use a mouse and, and to click on things. So the department had budgeted for a six-month rollout. And because I had worked for this large financial institution, I knew it was this should take six weeks. Right. So so I said to people, no, nah, this is no, no, you don't need this third-party vendor. I can do this for you in six weeks. And I had no idea how many enemies I was making, Brandon. <laughs> but I did. I just put my head down and I did the entire conversion. I got, you know. 100 workstations. I had to install like a floppy disk drive and a NIC. And, uh, you know, it was on coax, Brandon. This network was on coax. Okay. It was just crazy. Um, so I just, I did it in six six weeks. You okay. know, everything was set did up. Did you have like a team or was this all you? No, like it was just me. Okay. Just me and knee pads crawling under filthy, dirty desks and, you know, well, what, uh, swapping out cars. <laughs> I was going to say, um, like, what were people when, I mean, because talk about, I mean, paradigm shift, right? If you go from a DOS PC, just straight up command line to, you know, the first GUI, like, like were people happy? Were they just freaked out? Like, change is hard? Like, what was, I don't know, what was the user base? What was the reaction of all of that? 
Well, the recent college graduates were really happy. Um, and, you know, those are the folks that usually went to a prestigious school and then they went to like public policy. They have a master's in public policy from Berkeley or, you know, some other um, cool public policy school. And they're like analysts and they were they were accustomed to working on the little Macs, right? Mm-hmm. The little Apple twos or yep. whatever they were. So they were really excited. Um, and then you've got your more senior accountants. And these folks, you know, are mostly 3270 emulation mainframe type of people. And essentially what saved me was solitaire. Because what I would tell people is, okay, on your lunch break, play this solitaire game and it'll teach you how to click and drag and drop. Um, So that became our training program. And, um, you know, they'd, they'd call me and I'd go and check out and they couldn't even click the mouse rapidly enough. So the other thing that I came up with is, oh, okay, Brandon, you know, click, click. It's like that. It's not click, click. It's click, click. So people would call my phone and they, they, all they would say is click, click. And I'd say, who is this? Where are you? I'll come help you. <laughs> it's true. I guess like, yeah, I guess if you never seen a mouse and double clicking yeah. it, I guess it would yes. be all new. I, this is, that's funny. Cause this is the solitaire. Like when you want it, right. The clo- the cards kind of explode yes. and they bounce all yes. over. Right. Yes. That's good. So this is, yes. I don't know, this is a good lesson for everyone. Digital transformation, build in some, uh, some games, you know, when you're doing Absolutely. this, like building something fun for people just to do. Yeah. And, you know, people think that gamification is, you know, not for the workplace or whatever, you know, seven, eight years ago when gamification was just, just starting. But yeah, these folks in the mid nineties, um, solitaire and minesweeper. Yes. Remember yep. that one too. Yes. That yep. was, a, I don't, I think yep. it was boring though. I never, I don't know. I it was like, if I if I chose, I played solitaire. I never played yeah. uh, Minesweeper very much. Remember, we're talking about accountants. True, that's probably yeah. Office. You know what? So they really they liked the strategy of the Minesweeper, and you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, so you're upgrading all of the these desktop now. I mean, this this actually a question actually can um, literally apply to you. Did you, know, did you have to keep the trains running on time? Was there like a whole system for okay, uh, so, managing that so, side of it? So I worked for the controller for five years. Uh So that's all the accounting stuff, right? Yep. And whenever there was a problem at the municipal railway, it was like the bottom of the barrel department. Mm -hmm. Whenever there was a problem, a few of the aforementioned public policy folks would get detailed to go work at Muni. And it was like a punishment. You know, you had to go and work in these like really old and dilapidated, dirty offices. And, you know, the public just would get so angry about Muni. So there was just a lot of animosity. So people would get sent out of the controller's office, which was at City Hall and it was it was pretty nice and we'd get sent to you know these bus yards and so on and so forth. So some people would volunteer for these muni assignments and other people would just be assigned. And so at one point my friend Anne called me and she said, Kylie, I just interviewed for a terrible job and I thought of you. (laughs) Thanks, Anne. And she's like, I got to warn you, it's at Muni. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to Muni. And she said, but but it's to be the IT program manager because they're upgrading five of their operating systems and they need somebody to manage that program. And I said, is there any budget? And she said, yeah, there's an $11 million budget. Oh, wow. And in, 2000, in 2001, Brandon, that was a huge deal for a public transit agency. So we had $11 million to upgrade our entire operating platform. So I went over and I interviewed with the CFO because, you know, this is where the IT program manager was going to report in. And what was appealing about it 
um, was that um, I had a young child and um, I could choose to work four tens, so four days a week for 10 hours, and then I'd get three days off. So I did a job share with two other women. Um, there were two of us that had young kids and then another friend whose mother was dying. So we did a job share. So there were three of us, a business, a finance person, a budget person, and an IT person. And we were, we were on two requisitions, but we all got benefits. So we worked 30 hour, 32 hours a week, I think. And um, the CF only only had to pay for two people. So she got three for the price of two because, you know, we didn't work just 32 oh, of hours. Course you know, not. you of worked not. your whole you worked your whole job. Uh -huh. But um, but it was it was a sweet deal for me at the time because I really wanted that extra day. Um, so, yeah, I went to to Muni to do that. And there was a, a quick little holiday in between the controller's office in Muni where I worked for a dot com during the San Francisco dot com. Of course, boom. we all so, have that. We all did yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So I worked for them for eight months until they they burned through all their venture cap. And then I called my friends at the city and said, I need to come back. Like, and that's when back. my friend. Yeah, that's <laughs> when I got the. That got the terrible job call from my friend Dan. Nice. Well, what did you? So eleven million dollars, so though two thousand. That's a lot of yeah. money. Like what? Like what? Um, so what are you putting in place at this time? Like is this Cisco gear? Is this buying IBM or Sun? Like what? What? What's happening? Well, what's What's going yeah, on there? It's, it's actually a software project because the. Um, the general manager uh, had come from Philadelphia. He'd come from SEPTA, which is the transit agency in Philadelphia, and they had commercial off-the-shelf software. And when he got to Muni, we had all this homegrown stuff, either on the mainframe or on the AS400. Um, so Michael Burns was his name. He laid down this mandate that we're going to COTS software because then it will force us into sane workflows right. because none of the workflows mm -hmm. made any sense. So it was operator scheduling, which includes a payroll component because transit operators are paid on the value of pieces of work that they bid on. So it's really complicated. So there's operator scheduling and payroll vehicle maintenance and materials management, which is kind of like an ERP, but it's a little bit different because you're, you're tracking industrial assets. And this actually came up at, at our company just maybe two months ago, Brandon, because one of the clients that we're working with is a large um, utility. They provide energy in the Northeast and they had this old system. And I knew what it was. It was, it was a vehicle maintenance and materials management system that tracked <laughs> linear assets. Right. Okay. So I said to my colleague, Larry, I said, Oh, it's linear asset tracking. And he says to me, what the heck is a linear asset? And I said, well, at Muni, it was rail right. catenary catenary, which is an overhead line, um, underground conduit, uh, fiber cable. And we also had San Francisco has a utility pole agreement because all the utility poles and light poles throughout San Francisco, they're shared by the Public Utilities Commission and okay. Muni and some some other things. So so all of the poles throughout an urban environment are also considered linear assets and you've got to track all of these. Right. So that was one of the systems. Then there was real-time passenger information. So we were just kind of at the dawn of Google, what became like eventually Google Transit, but it was putting GPS transponders onto transit vehicles. Oh, that's so cool. you could, that sounds so pretty fun. Could, yeah. Yeah. It, it's fun, except 
operators hated it and they'd vandalize the equipment that Why? we put they on. Don't, they don't want to know where they're where they are. They, don't they, want, want, they want people big they brother watching. They don't want watching? to be tracked. Oh. They don't want to be tracked. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's crazy when your own users are vandalizing your equipment. So it's <laughs> yeah, another challenge. I would think the, so. Challenge the public sector. Um, another system was a fart, uh, smart fare card. Uh-huh. And it was, um, you know, a smart card. Uh, with the embedded chip and you had an e-purse and what was cool about this Brandon, and it would help you in your transfers uh, from BART to Muni and vice versa is the nine Bay area transit operators had to, to sign on to this smart fare card system so that people could transfer. So if I got on Caltrain and Mountain View and took it up to, um, you know, the ballpark essentially in San Francisco, and then I could transfer to a Muni bus and I could take it to Embarcadero Station and then I could transfer to BART and I could be out in Pleasanton. Nice. So it would take me, it would take me like four hours, but I could still do it with one, one, one fare piece card. Of, yeah, one fare card. So there was that. And then there was a safety, security, and training application. So, um, yeah, that was my job. I had 11 million bucks and um, no staff and no authority and three years. That's awesome. And, yeah, yeah. And this was from, like, developing the RFPs to, you know, doing the design with the with whoever, whichever vendor and, you know, herding a bunch of cats. And I had to introduce the program at a, at a like, a meeting, a manager's meeting. And, and this one guy got up, and he probably worked at the cable car barn or one of the other car barns, and he managed, you know, the trades. Because Muni has a carpenter shop and an electrical shop and this kind of stuff. So his name was Dale, and he, he managed um, some of the trades. And he said to me, Kylie, I'm a grumpy old man. What I want to know is, is this job going to make my job easier? And I said, no, Dale, it, first it's going to make your job harder mm-hmm. <laughs> because you're going to have to work with me and I'm going to have to gather requirements and then you're going to have to test everything. And I said, then eventually it'll make your job easier. And he says, well, he said, you know, at least you were honest about it because if you were going to tell me it was going to make my job easier, I was going to give you an earful, you know, and I'm like, like in my mid thirties and, you know, all these other folks are, you know, veteran people and we're in this, you know, conference venue setting or whatever. And, you know, this guy's going to like rip me to shreds, Brandon, if I'm going to tell him I'm making his job easier. (laughs) Well, I think it's, Hey, I mean, it's it's funny how things don't change. Right. I think that would be that same comment. Those same questions are being asked today about IT modernization, digital transformation all the time. Like, is this going to be harder or whatever adopting DevOps? I mean, pick anything. Right. And I think that, uh, probably the lesson there is like Mm -hmm. a little upfront honesty will usually buy you a lot more credibility than, than just telling them, you know what? Yeah. Oh no, it's all going to, it's going to be fine. It's going to work perfectly. It's like, no, it is going to be harder initially, but, uh, well, hopefully, and maybe in his case, maybe you can make, uh, make another argument. Well, you know, the, the riders or what, I don't know what you would call the people using it, but whoever the riders, the people like, it's going to make their life a lot easier. Right. Which is hopefully the end goal for all of that organization. I don't know. Maybe that's, uh, uh, too naive to think everyone's thinking that way, but you would hope people are thinking that way. Exactly. Exactly. And it's, it's, how is this going to streamline things for the end user and whether it's an internal or an external client, right? So the, the writers are the external clients and then the internal clients would be his team of electricians or whatever, because they were tasked with pulling the PCMCIA cards from 1100 buses every, every night or, or two or three times a week. And they only have a window of time between 2am and 5am to do it. 
Okay, so I could see, all right, so I could see why he was asking those questions. That that's uh, that is a ton of work. All right, so you you've done this. You fix all of San Francisco transportation. You're leaving your mark <laughs> there, and then somehow you decide to uh, to go to Cisco. So what's uh, what prompted the change there? And I guess what what's it like to go from you know a public sector job to not only a private sector job but working as as a vendor? What was that like? Sure. Well, how that came to pass is, remember I told you that the the MTA was made up of um, Muni, Department of Parking and Traffic, and the the Taxi Commission. So the Department of Parking and Traffic is very engineering-driven. They're traffic engineers. And you know, like the public policy people, they're really well educated and they're very, just very smart. And typically they come out as interns after college and they typically stay with the Department of Parking and Traffic, DPT. So um, I got a call one day from a, a friend of mine at DPT and she said, Kylie, we just pitched a bunch of stuff to Cisco for this um, connected urban development and they didn't like anything of it. So can you um, send me the diagram of the porcupine bus? And so I said, wait a second, Cheryl, what are you talking about? So the Connected Urban Development was a partnership between the Clinton Global Initiative, three sister cities, San Francisco, Amsterdam, and Seoul, Korea, and Cisco. So it was this thing that Gavin Newsom, when he was the mayor of San Francisco, got us involved in because, you know, he he went to Davos and stuff right. like that. Okay. So, um, so what the um, what this initiative wanted to do is they wanted to reduce pollutants in the urban environment. So my friend Cheryl, who called me, had had seen this diagram that I had done of of what some other Muni folks had dubbed the Porcupine Bus, and each of our buses had 12 different Wi-Fi systems on them because we had all these proprietary systems and there was no integration. And every time you punch a hole in a transit vehicle skin that you run the risk of invalidating the warranty. Okay? okay. So we wanted to get some of these antennas off of the tops of the buses to prolong the life of the vehicle because you've got to run the vehicle. I think it's for 12 years, then you have to retire it if it's federally funded. So, you know, think of the terrain in San Francisco and how punishing that is on a, on a transit vehicle. Um, so yeah, so you don't want like water intrusion because you've got all these, these antennas, but you have to have the antennas because all the systems are are wireless. So I thought, why can't I have a router? I want a router on the bus to route all this traffic. So, <laughs> okay. um, I, I, I wrote a grant proposal, you know, because that's what you do in the public sector when you need money. Uh-huh. So I wrote this grant proposal that, that pulled on a lot of the stuff that I had been dealing with on the communications subcommittee for Muni. And it's a lot of, it was a lot of good work from my folks, including the aforementioned grumpy old man, you know, Dale's guys were involved in that as well. So I took that work and I, I built a grant proposal and, and sent it into Cisco and never thought about it again. And then, you know, a couple months later, my friend Cheryl calls me and she said, Kylie, we pitched, we pitched all this stuff to Cisco. We tried again with the fiber for, um, Doyle Drive, which is the approach to the Golden Gate Bridge. And wouldn't you think that Cisco would have wanted to fund that since a bridge yes, is their logo. Of course. Yep. Okay. So Cheryl struck out. And so she dug deep in her purse and she pulled out the rumpled porcupine bus diagram. And she said, what do you guys think of this? And they said, yeah, this looks cool. So I wrote the grant proposal. And then three months later, Cheryl called me and said, Kylie, Cisco picked your project. And I was like, you're kidding. Oh my God. Now we have to build it. So we built this, this 
proof of concept called the connected bus. And essentially it was a bus before there was Wi-Fi on buses, uh, a buses with a, a Cisco mobile access router. Okay. And it helped, and it helped us provide real time passenger information. And then it helped us take all, you know, just offload the data. It was like the backhaul from the systems so that we didn't have to go PCM CIA card. Right. Right. That sounds pretty awesome. So, okay. And so yeah, Cisco so, helped, so, helped you build this whole thing out. They like, yes. You, okay. Yeah. So I was in, in, in the public sector, you wear a bunch of hats. So I wrote the grant proposal. I was the project manager. I was the executive sponsor. It was kind of my thing. I just worked like a dog right. with, with the Cisco team. And, you know, I still was a deputy CIO and had all my other strategic work that I had to do. And I was still minding the store on the IT program, you know, the $11 million thing. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm juggling all this stuff. And uh, lo and behold, we built the bus and it was just supposed to be on display at this worldwide conference in San Francisco. And the mayor in front of the San Francisco Chronicle says, I love this bus. It'll be on the road on Monday. And the people at Cisco freaked out. They're like, Kylie, we can't possibly do this. And I said, you guys, you have no choice. It's on the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle. So we ran it as a POC. It actually ran for a year. We collected a ton of data. Um, as the project was winding down, there was a lot of change happening um, for my role. And the folks at Cisco said, you need to come work here. And I said, thank you very much. I will. That's awesome. So I went to yeah. – <laughs> so, so that's the unlikely story of how do you go from Muni, land of, you know – ground in gum and sunflower seeds to Cisco. Doo, doo, doo. And at the time I had been a Cisco certified network admin, uh, associate for like a few years, maybe like five or six years. And so it was like, it was like I was going home to my people. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was pretty cool. So I, I went to work at Cisco and I was a senior solutions manager um, but because I came from the public sector, I wasn't allowed to work on any public sector stuff oh, for like okay. a year or gotcha. two years, you know, mm -hmm. because of the lobbying stuff. So um, essentially, I just was a kind of the, the solutions manager, program manager for the team that had done the bus for me. Gotcha. Um, and at the same time, one of the guys on the team had been approached in kind of more of a thought leadership role, his name was Dave and Dave was approached and the marketing people said, Cisco doesn't have a futurist. You should be the futurist. And they want, they wanted to call him the futurologist. They're like, Cisco needs a oh, futurologist. Okay, like meteorologist or something. Okay. Yeah. And got he's it. like, and Dave's like, no, it sounds like proctologist. I'm not going to be a futurologist. <laughs> okay. All you right. know? And so a little, a little digging. And we found that Salesforce had a futurist and other people oh, had futurists. Okay. So Dave became the futurist. So our little group started, you know, doing a lot more with thought leadership built. And it was a cool job, Brandon, because John Chambers would hand pick our engagements and he, you know, in some conversation with the CEO of like a big, uh, retail company or a big grocery chain in the UK, you know, he'd just say, Hey, if you guys want to try something new with augmented reality or, um, you know, real time information on your shelves, I have a team that builds really cool, uh, demos, pilots, and prototypes. And we did this prototype for the city of San Francisco and we ran a transit bus and it was really cool. And if you ever want to do this, let us know. So that's what I did for three years at Cisco as I, 
you know, John Chambers like would send us to the people and we would, we would meet with them in the executive technology experience, mm-hmm. which was a nice little consulting venue that we had. And, you know, the guys on my team would talk about all the great Cisco stuff. And of course, our goal was just to drive bandwidth consumption, right? right? So that's a good goal. Um, So those guys would talk about what they did. And then I'd say, hey, you know, three years ago, I was sitting in your chair. I was this, you know, deputy CIO at this agency. And the guys at Cisco built out, they made good on their promises. And we ran the bus for a year. And that's how it worked. So that was that was our deal. All right. Well, it sounds like an awesome job, but for some reason, so I guess being a, working in the office of the futurist was, wasn't fulfilling enough and, and you made your way to uh, the school of nursing at the university of California at San Francisco. Is that, is that, was that the next step? Well, the next step was the crash of 2008. Cisco ran back to its core competence in routing and switching. So mm-hmm. all the innovation went away. Yep. No, no and time for the future it, during a crash. Just time for the right. stock price. Uh-huh. That's right. And then away, away went um, the team and, you know, last one in, first one out. So that was a rude awakening coming from the public sector where people just don't get laid off. Yeah. Right. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, and you, you had also asked about um, the transition and it was rough, Brandon, because pe- people were just so smart and they, everything was so fast. So it took me a while to catch up. So, yeah, so I, I lost my job at Cisco and then I, um, went to UCSF, University of California, San Francisco, and I was an IT director for the School of Nursing. And um, you had asked me how I got it, and I got it from Cal Jobs, which is the unemployment job board. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I went in and did a presentation on my vision of healthcare and nursing and this kind of stuff, and they really liked me and they hired me. So uh, I thought I was going to be doing consulting with uh, UCSF nursing researchers on cool things like mobile apps for teen oncology patients. So while right. they're in treatment, they could stay connected with their friends. And lo and behold, when I got there, it was IT outsourcing, transformation to cloud, mm-hmm. as well as tech consulting for education and resource and tons of governance committees, et cetera, et cetera. I had to lay people off. So it was it was just like a mini ITO transformation all rolled into my office. And I had no staff and I worked like a dog. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like yeah. all of these positions, you know, it's interesting because I think the kind of the next step is, you know, you, you kind of get into HP and then now DXE and you know what we do or like, I think hopefully what we're doing day to day is we're talking to clients all the time about, you know, digital transformation and what it's like. So do you kind of look back at it? Was it, is it one of these things where it's like you have all of this experience now and, and you're ready to, you know, here at DXE and other places, like if you will give, give advice, have you, did you find it like a fulfilling experience to then like go out and now talk to people how to do it? Like what, what was your mindset as you kind of like go from maybe like owning digital transformation to now, uh, you know, if you will working with clients and talking about the benefits of it. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, everything leading up to the roles at HPE and DXC, uh, you know, I learned along the way being the client going through the transformation. So I think I have a really understanding point of view about digital transformation. And um, I don't think it's a new concept. I think it's been happening all along my career trajectory. Uh, I think it's more about people than tools. And as I mentioned before, it's always going to make your job harder before easier. Mm -hmm. And I think that the result, the end game that everyone's looking for from 
digital transformation is they want they want to make better decisions. It's that data-driven decision-making rather than the gut instinct. And whether that's about you know, cutting costs or reaching more clients or whatever, it's, it's digital transformation enables better decision-making. You know, it's about having that information every step of the way. And it's with your employees, with your customers, with any clients or partners that you work with. It's your regulators if you're in a heavily regulated industry. So I think that that's, that's kind of the, the real meat of the discussions when I'm talking to clients. It's really got to be more about the business and less about the tools. Yeah, I think that's probably the the one underlying thing that comes up the most, right, is that a lot of times the conversations start about tools and the challenge is always to bring it back to some type of business conversation and to not get so, uh, I guess that's, you know, and I think everyone's guilty of it, right, because the tools and technology can kind of, can be fun to talk about, right, and it's, but it's easy to get distracted um, from what you're trying to do. So today, like when we're working together and we're doing stuff, um, when you're getting engaged with prospective clients, like, what what problems are they coming in and are talking about? Are they talking about are they actually using the words digital transformation? Are they just talking about technology problems? Like how do you engage with them today? I think they're trying to solve a number of problems. Okay. And it, it sounds like a technology problems, but a lot of times it's an organizational change problem. It might be a generational change in their workforce. You know, you've got newer, younger folks coming in with different skill sets and different expectations, and you're trying to attract and retain talent, or you're trying to attract different customers. Um, I think it's all always about simplification in some ways, Brandon. Um, and it's about cost savings. So I think it's, you know, it's people and it's saving money to reach more people if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, I always say, you know, no matter, you know, sometimes I got these presentations and, or when we're talking, it's like, Hey, at the end of the day, it's really about two things. It's improving productivity and reducing costs. Like that's just, you know, everything in, in my mind always kind of comes back to those two core things that clients want to talk about. So it's really just trying to engage them around, okay, what are the biggest opportunities for us to do one or the other, or hopefully both. So as we kind of think about that, though, I think when you get into digital transformation, right, because it's a broad term, um, you know, I think we always end up talking about people about potentially doing migrations, potentially doing like modernizations, and sometimes we even talk about transformation. So like, what do those words mean to you? Like when you're talking to clients, like how do you delineate between those, those kind of different opportunities at a client? Sure. Well, the way I think of it personally, Brandon, I have this quote that I really like, and it's from this guy named Dan Millman. He was like a, a coach, an athletic trainer or an athletic director and a personal like development author. And his thing was the secret of change is to focus all of your energy, not on fighting the old, but on building the new. And I really like that when I'm thinking about migration, modernization and transformation. So the way I would explain it to a client is, you know, the fact that we're migrating stuff acknowledges all of the good work that you've done in the 
in the past to get you to where you are now. And it's really the foundation of your transformation. Okay. So that's, that's kind of the migration aspect. And then modernization is how that good work grows into something that's useful in the present right now, because you've got to get it migrated into something useful. And then the transformation piece is what makes your good work available into the future. So, so that's kind of how I think of that journey, that migration, modernization, and transformation. And I try to honor the work that, if, that people have done because a lot of times people think, oh, you're just going to come in here and change everything and you don't respect what I've built, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, we want to take what you've built. We want to take your legacy as in your personal, you know, what's on your gravestone kind of legacy, not your legacy mainframe. We want to take all the hard work that you've invested and we want to make it live on. Mm-hmm. And that's what a transformation moving something to the cloud, you know, could be. I love that phrase. I love honor. I want to, we want to honor your work because I think, um, you know, the words we use sometimes, and certainly I've used probably too much legacy, which has so many negative connotations, right? And it is everyone. I mean, if someone just walks into your world and calls you legacy, you know, it's usually not like, (laughs) it's very rarely meant as a compliment, but I think the idea of like, Hey, we're honoring the work and we're bringing it into the future. And then we're, we want to set the stage, right, to let you have it in the future. I mean, I think it's a fantastic metaphor. We probably all should talk. And it's just like, if you will, just the connotation of being a lot more positive, just the word honor versus legacy. Has, it's a very powerful difference there. Well, thanks. Thanks. And, you know, I think those grumpy old men back at Muni taught me that. You know, I really had to, I really had to respect everything that they had built and all of their work and all of their expertise. Yeah. And I think you're probably right. Especially transportation and railroads, you know, there's a lot about honoring the, you know, there is, there's a lot of work in putting that in. So that's a, that's probably it is. So, so you didn't know it, you're getting great career uh, advice in digital transformation from the grumpy old person at that time. So there you go. Exactly. That, that's, exactly. Uh, that's fantastic. All right. Well, what do you think? You know, we, we end up when we talk about any of this stuff, we always end up talking about cloud and cloud computing and cloud adoption. So, you know, what's your take? There's AWS, Azure, GCP, Lots of stuff happening. What are you seeing out there? How much are customers and clients really adopting the cloud today? Well, I think that everyone is trying to adopt cloud, okay, because they see the future, they see the potential that it offers. Um, And I think that most customers start with the easy stuff. And that means an application that can easily be moved to the cloud or a workload that can easily be moved to the cloud. And then as they get to the medium and higher complexity applications or pieces of work, things stall and people get frustrated. And they realize at that point they're not achieving those cost-saving goals that they thought they would. And so at that point, Brandon, they've got to come back and they've really got to look at at leadership. I think leadership is the most important thing to stalling or to breaking the roadblock or getting the stalled migration or cloud transformation changed. And you've really got to have that key executive sponsorship at the C-suite level to kind of power through this impasse that you have with, with your path to cloud. Um, what I think I hear the most about, and maybe that's because I was in San Francisco for so many years, was AWS. And of course, AWS has, you know, relies on the developer evangelist. And AWS adoption was really important in San Francisco because it, it enabled so many uh, startup companies, right? Um, it's less 
it's less good. I don't know if that sounds right. Uh, it's less appealing if you're a heavily regulated industry. I think those types of clients feel more comfortable with Microsoft Azure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so I think that AWS was out of the gate and most consistent thing that people wanted. Everybody wants EC2. Everybody wants elasticity, right? Then Microsoft Azure, and then a little bit more with a little bit now with Google, but maybe it's because I'm a Bay Area person. It seems like AWS was more trusted than Google. And I think that relates to privacy and just kind of what tech guys feel about Google. Mm-hmm. You know, they feel that Google is taking all of their personal information and selling it. <laughs> yep, right. You know? based, based on the legacy search business, right? Sure. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a little bit of a distrust because Google is invading my privacy and a little bit of distrust because Microsoft is the man. Mm-hmm. And so that's why AWS kind of got the head start. Plus, they went to the developer and they gave the developer cool tools to build proofs of concept that they could percolate up in their organizations. And that was really smart. No, that's cool. Well, that's good. I think, I think it's a good summary of it all. Well, I, you know, I'm going to, we'll do a little pitch here. Well, well, it doesn't, you know, no matter which one you want to uh, work with, we, we can help you. That's what we should tell everyone is like, that's okay. We can help you with any one of those cloud providers and help you do some uh, digital transformation. So, that's um, right. We're we're cloud ag- agnostic. That's right. We're cloud agnostic. We're uh, and we're and we're going to as uh, as you said we're, we will honor honor your work as we help you adopt any of the cloud. That should be our new uh, our new tagline. So we've talked a lot about digital transformation, but I did want to like you know, kind of take a little detour here because I think for a couple of reasons, you know, right now difficult time in the world. We don't have to go into all that, but lots of people for lots of. Reasons probably having nothing to do with them or out searching for jobs. It's, you know, it's a a difficult time. So I thought, you know, you have had an incredible career doing all kinds of stuff. I mean, we've public, private sector, you've been a futurist, you've been uh, replacing, uh, you know, cards underneath the desk. So I thought, you know, what advice would you give um, for somebody that's maybe either entering the job market for the first time, or maybe they've been experienced for a while, but they find themselves out looking for a job? Like what kinds of uh, advice would you give them? Well, I guess if you're looking for a job, I mean, you really have to figure out what your personal brand is. And I know that's kind of an overused buzz phrase, but you really have to talk about what makes you unique. Um, And it can also be called, I think it's intellectual capital. So if you're a new job seeker, like in your early 20s, there's a great book called um, The Defining Decade. And it talks about developing your intellectual, your identity capital. That's what it is. It's identity capital. So it's, it's learning how to tell good stories about yourself. Okay. Okay. So you've got to develop your personal brand. You've got to be able to tell a compelling story about what's unique about you. And you have to convince people that you can do just about anything that they ask, you know, that you're willing to learn and that, you know, if you run into a roadblock, you're going to work your way through it. So develop the personal brand, know what's unique about you. And that can be a blend of personal and professional. And then the other thing would be to be patient. Brandon, it just takes a long time now mm-hmm. to get hired. Well, what do you think about like for people that maybe been out working for a while and, you know, maybe they haven't looked for a job in a while, but they find themselves, you know, looking for a job potentially. And, you know, we get a lot of times we always talking about the new technology. And I think sometimes people feel like their old experience doesn't uh, get, if you will, weighted as heavily as maybe they think it should. So I don't know. Have you ever had an experience like that? Like what's, what's your, um, 
suggestion to people about how do they take maybe some of the projects they did and, and kind of, if you will, uh, make them part of their identity capital? How do you tell a good story if you've been out for a while and you're kind of just getting back to the job search? Well, I think any kind of, if it's been project-based work, I mean, just the tenets of project management, you know, uh, uh, initiate, plan, execute, close, and control. You can't go wrong with telling your stories around where you were in that in that project along that continuum. Um, but I do think it's super important that you keep your skills current. I mean, you and I both know this in our field. It's changing so fast. It's really hard to keep, keep current. So, um, you need to tell your story around your contribution on whatever team it was and how it might map to something new in the job description. And you've, you've simply have to upskill. And there's so many ways to do that now. There's training class, there's free training classes, there's Coursera, there's LinkedIn Learning. You know, you and I know that Google, Azure, and AWS provide all kinds of free training on their websites. And you just have to upskill. You've got to talk about the basics. You've got to talk about how you solved problems and what you contributed to the team. And then you have to upskill. And, you know, something that I did when I was trying to upskill is <laughs> I got Alexa and I built a couple of Alexa blueprints. You know, I did one for the dog sitter so she'd know where to find the dog food. Right. But there was like a pet, pet sitting blueprint on Alexa. So, you know, I went in, I spun up a little dev environment. I, you know, I did the whole thing. I did my little Alexa blueprint. And then when people asked me about it, well, you know, what kind of uh, experience do you have with this? And Brandon, that's the other thing. People always want to make me into a developer. You know, can I write code? It doesn't matter at this point in my career if I write code. I do so many other things that are important to the process that code doesn't have anything to do with. But I, I think that I always feel like, well, I got I to gotta have some kind of technical chops. So I'd say, well, you know, I just built this blueprint in Alexa and blah, blah, blah. And then I tell my little story. And yeah. they're like, cool cool. She did this Alexa thing. No, okay. I think it's always, I, I think it's the best. Um, you know, I, I like to build uh, iPhone apps, you know, that are not very good, but I like to throw them out there. Uh, and I do think it is it, when you kind of walk into an interview or you're talking to somebody, it's just always fun to like point to something, right? Like just point to mm -hmm. stuff in the app store, or, like point to something that you've done. And, um, because it just also gives that, that person like something to like really ask specific questions. Like, well, how did you know? How did you figure out, you know, what the dog sitter needed to know, right? How did you do it? You know, it just like gives, it's just more fun to talk about that than like abstract, you know, I don't know. Can you reverse a, a red black tree? It's like, no, no, I can't. I can't do it anymore. <laughs> so, but I could Google right. it. I could figure it out if I had to. So right. good. Yep. All right. Well, that's good. It sounds, sounds thing. So tell your story, keep your skills current, stay patient. That's how everyone's going to find a job, right? Does that sound about right? <laughs> I think that those are good steps. Absolutely. And Brandon, at least for the last few years for me, the Cal Jobs Board for UCSF being the exception, it's been my colleagues, previous colleagues have helped have helped to surface my name. Absolutely. You know, so it's that networking aspect always. No, you're totally you right. Know? Can't know enough yeah. people. Can't know enough people in the world. I, that's that's I, right. I 100% agree. And just to have somebody vouch for you, then when you you join the new organization, you can you can build your credibility. You know, yeah. um, because that's the hard thing that when you change jobs a lot, you're, you're this new person, you're this unknown commodity and you have, you have to continue to prove yourself over and over again. So, um, it's, it can be draining. <laughs> it can be absolutely true. So, all right. But I think you'll give people some optimism there. Like it can be draining, but it can also be fun, right? It's always fun to go yeah. new places yeah. and learn new stuff, right? Cause that's why sure. you just pick up and the new skills. 
You know, you can always volunteer. I did that as well. I volunteered for this group and they were on Slack and they were using Trello cards and I had to set a set up a GitHub repo, you know, for a volunteer thing. And it, so then in interviews, I could say, well, you know, I have a GitHub repo and, you know, my team was on Slack and, <laughs> that's you right. know. Get all the, so, uh, get all the new things, all the free things on your resume. That's fantastic. Right, so. right, right. All right. Well, I've learned a lot, Kylie, even more than uh, I learned from you every day when we work together. So uh, let's uh, kind of make it easier. So what's the best way? If someone wants to get started with digital transformation, maybe they want your help. What should they do? Where should they go? Well, to get started with digital transformation, you've got to begin at home. You need those clear and measurable business goals and an evangelist executive sponsor. But then when you're ready, when you have those things, <laughs> you're ready to go. Um, you start with a trusted partner. You know, again, acknowledge the good work that's been done, bring it into the present and get ready to push it into the future. And I think a trusted partner who you who is working on your application estate or has some insight into your business is a great way to start. And they can bring in the talented Google, AWS, Azure folks, um, because everything's about partnerships now. Um, but get that trusted partner who knows your core business and has experience and they can bring in all the cool new resources. I like it. Can't go wrong with that advice. And then if I, uh, if I want to find you out on the intranets on the web, uh, what's, what's the best way to find you? Okay. You can find me on Twitter. My, um, handle is at current Kylie. So just the word current and my name, Kylie. And that was because my futurist guy was Dave the Futurist. And I thought, well, he's the futurist and I'm a little more practical. Oh, so I'm I'm go. current, Kylie. Got it. Now I got it. Now <laughs> it makes sense. Okay. Okay. And I'm also on LinkedIn, um, Brandon. You can just search my name. I yeah, think absolutely. there is actually another Kylie Grenier, but um, I think you'll know you'll notice the difference because we're at different stages in our lives and I'm the old lady. <laughs> all right. I will put uh, links to all of those things. So it'll be easy. So if you, if you want to find Kylie, just uh, look in your show notes right now. We'll have all the right links in there for you. So, uh, so Kylie, thanks a lot for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Brandon. It was a lot of fun. All right. Fantastic. And uh, for everyone else, if uh, this is the first time you've ever heard Software Defined Talk, well, welcome. And you uh, can probably subscribe by just uh, scrolling back right now in your favorite podcast player and hitting subscribe. Or you can go out to our website at www.softwaredefinedtalk.com. There you can uh, join our Slack. You can uh, follow us on all the social media. And if you want, I'll even send you a Software Defined Talk sticker. So this is what you got to do. Just send me your postal address to stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com. Be happy to send you a sticker or a couple stickers anywhere in the world. And with that, thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you next time.